Who's Mr. Putin? What has he done for Russia in the last two decades? And what is his vision for Russia's future? Is Mr. Putin an ideological man? Uh, I think he has become that. Um, it, in what it is way? Not, well, um, it's not an ideology that you and I would recognize as particularly coherent, um, but it is, and it is anti-thing. So one thing it is anti. is anti is liberalism, and that is you know small l liberalism, as in classical liberalism, the 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 basis on which uh, you know United the United States democracy was was built. The collapse of the Soviet Union is the biggest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. By now, we all have heard this infamous statement by Mr. Putin, because it's so often repeated in our news these days. But did you know, there is a second part to this statement that our news media almost never mention, an important part that may be a clue to Mr. Putin's plans. Hey there, news peelers. Today is March 4th, 2022, and this is Adele, the host of the Peel.News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this Peel into History Behind News. Sometimes we find humor in what they share, sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive. Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So the Peel Dot News is not for everyone. If you want headline news, well, you know where to get that. But if you want to explore how we got here, if you want to journey, into what happened before these developments showed up as news on our TV and device screens, then grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. I recently came across an account about Mr. Putin's early years that is quite frankly frightening, particularly in light of the war in Ukraine now. According to a story in the Wall Street Journal, when Mr. Putin was assessed decades ago as a young recruit to the KGB, he was found to have a, quote, lowered sense of danger. What does a lowered sense of danger mean to you? To me, it sounds like Mr. Putin is willing to take big risks. If he is, in fact, a big risk taker, what is he aiming for? A Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist of the New York Times calls Mr. Putin a demonic little man, among many other expletives, in a recent opinion piece in which she writes about Mr. Putin's need to feed his Cold War dreams. So is that it? Mr. Putin wants Russia to return to the good old Soviet days? That is a big question, one that our guest, Professor Catherine Stoner of Stanford University, addressed in an essay titled, The Putin Puzzle, Why Ukraine? Why Now? This essay was published in the Wall Street Journal. She's also the author of Russia Resurrected, Its Power and Purpose in a New Global Order. It's a 2021 book that is highly relevant to current events, and of course, we discuss it in this episode. Professor Stoner is the Mosbacher Director and Senior Fellow at Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. She's also a senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies and a professor of political science at Stanford University and also a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. To learn more about Professor Stoner, her projects and publications, visit her academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Stoner and I peel the history behind this news. 
The Peel.News is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Stoner, it is a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Thank you. Are there any impactful points or pivotal moments in Mr. Putin's earlier personal or professional life that form his personality now? So I'm not a psychologist, of course, but uh, there are uh, there's a lot written um, um, about you know, his early life and his time in the KGB and uh, and sort of turning points that I think we can, if we're you know trying to understand his behavior, that we can probably turn to um, to give us some, you know, some insight into how he thinks. But um, he, you know, was born in St. Petersburg, uh, which was Leningrad at the time. And he lived in a communal apartment, which was typical of uh, people in the 60s, 70s, 80s um, in the Soviet Union, as it then was. He uh, sort of described as a street tough. He got into some skirmishes uh, as a, as a uh, teenager, but he also had this enduring interest in uh, the KGB. And you have to remember that. In even in his period, teenage years, is that what you Yeah, mean? even in his TJ, teenage years. And he tells us in this, there's a very short book that's been written um about him and it's really a series of interviews that uh where he 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 was basically followed by a group of journalists as he was running for president in 2000 because he came out of the blue more or less uh, yeah yeah appointee and so he says that you know one of his favorite shows uh was something called the sword and the shield when he was a, a teenager and it was about sword and the shield sword and the shield and it was about a, uh, a kgb officer and it was considered a respectable you know in some quarters honorable job and he loved the tv show uh so let's see i'm trying to think of an equivalent law and order maybe or csi here and so he tried uh, the story goes as a as a teenager to sign up for the kgb and the, the at the recruiting office they told him you're too young can't do that go to college and he was eager. <laughs> he was very eager. Yes. Go to college. And, uh, they told him a law degree would be helpful. And so that's, that's what he did. He did uh, a law degree at Leningrad state university. And then he went to the red banner Academy for, uh, training for language. And he, German was the language that he learned. And then he's posted to Dresden. And I think getting to your question, when we is, think is about Dresden, uh, if, if my, I want to make sure my geography is correct here, is that in East Germany? East, yes. Yeah, okay. Yes, that was in East Germany. And by some accounts, kind of a sleepy post for uh, mm-hmm. an aspiring, you know, he eventually becomes a lieutenant colonel in the KGB. But there's some evidence, and, and in particular, a woman named Catherine Belton makes this argument in a book called Putin's People, that... Dresden was actually a center for technology importing into the Soviet Union, and that it was also um, a uh, a place where they were more or less the the KGB uh, setting up and use shadow businesses, using those shadow businesses to run money into uh, accounts in it possible in anticipation of the possible collapse of the Soviet Union. So she makes the, uh, the, the claim that, you know, Putin was involved in this and actually not as unimportant in the KGB interest and as people had had thought, perhaps, and that he may even have worked with terrorist groups uh, who were trying to commit acts of terror in Europe and, and Latin America. So that's one, you know, possibility. Yeah, or one account, but I think the real, and it, it definitely a point that had a, a in in history that had a big impression on him and his and possibly his future direct uh, trajectory is 
1989, of course, the Berlin Wall collapses between East and West Germany. And Putin describes in this little book that I just mentioned called uh, From the First Person, that series of interviews with journalists following him because people didn't know who he was, <laughs> even <laughs> though he'd briefly been, you know, he had been appointed prime minister by Yeltsin, but only three months earlier. And suddenly there he was, January 1st, 2000, acting president. So he says that, you know, he was, uh, had to go outside the uh, consulate in Dresden, the Soviet consulate, because there were, there were protesters who wanted in and they wanted uh, to, to get, you know, documents from this uh, consulate and, um, they, you know, in the middle of, this is November 1989. And so he calls uh, for help from the Stasi and from, which is the secret service in East Germany and from Moscow. And the response he gets is, Moscow is silent. We can't, you know, we can't send out any help without Moscow saying, okay, and Moscow is silent. And so the fact that Moscow was silent and not there, I uh, reportedly shook him up considerably. And, um, uh, you know, this was really uh, the end of the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union. And um, he, he clearly had, you know, a view of, as many people in his generation do, he's 69 years old, uh, of the Soviet Union as an empire, as a geographic empire and so watching first losing the satellite countries coming uh, of eastern europe then coming back to st petersburg without a job not really welcomed back uh, um, although still in the kgb um, and then um, you know he he takes a job as the deputy uh, mayor as a, it's an appointed position to the elected mayor of um, St. Petersburg, as it becomes Leningrad, uh, Anatoly Subchak, and um, he still works for the KGB. Well, well, the KGB's name had changed, uh, right? Doesn't change. Doesn't change until this. Yes, after the collapse of the Soviet Union after yeah. 1991, and it becomes the FSB. The two main branches are yeah. the FSB, which is like our FBI, uh, internal security, and this, and the SVR, which is external. It's uh, kind of like a CIA. Exactly. Um, you touched on this point, but it's, it's sort of something that I've been wondering. So I want to um, make sure that uh, I understand this. Do you think the collapse of the Soviet Union had a more, more profound effect on Mr. Putin than, say, like other Soviet bureaucrats? Is he, is he getting hyperbolic and dramatic about it or... You know, you were saying his generation is. Does everyone feel that way about it? Um, his well, I think I think the older there is a there is in the you know polling, um, for example, for the for the last thirty years, there there is a generational difference. Definitely, uh, people who grew up and in and were in their you know sort of prime working years during the Soviet period tend to be, of course, more nostalgic about that than people who didn't. Right, so. Uh, someone in their 20s now in, in Russia has known no other president than Putin um, and has known no other system than the post-Soviet system. But someone in their, you know, 60s, uh, as he is, and he's almost 70, it's a really very different experience. So he remembers things like, you know, just like I might remember the classic Hawaii Five-0. I'm ashamed to admit that. Um, or Miami Vice. <laughs> I watched Vice. the reruns. <laughs> right. Or Miami Vice. Right? Yeah. He remembers the sword and the shield. And so people and the, and the people closest to him currently, around him currently, uh, come from a uh, either an intelligence background or a military background, but they're all about the same age. And, you know, they, they do lament the end of the empire, not the end of the communist system, and um, but the end of the empire. Um, and so I do think that makes a difference. Yeah. There's a famous quote, of course, we can talk about if you want. I want to hear the quote now. Oh, well, he always, he, you know, it's always, it, it seems to pop up in the newspapers and magazines all the time, um, which is uh, him saying in about 2000, and I can't remember, five or six, that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. Do you remember that one? Yeah, yeah. It's in yeah. the news all the time. Yeah. Right. And but there's a second line to that. 
what is that anyone anyone who doesn't feel that way has no heart anyone who wants it back has no head so he doesn't want the soviet union as a political and economic system back and communism but the geographic area i think is perhaps a different matter oh wow could you repeat that whole sentence again the two segments together please sure it's uh it's the collapse of the soviet union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century but anyone who wants it back uh, anyone who doesn't miss it has no heart and anyone who wants it back has no head. that's profound how come the news doesn't talk about the second part well because that doesn't it doesn't fit with the narrative right which yeah. is that he's trying to restore the soviet union and in a sense he is but it's also you know geographically perhaps but it's also the russian empire yeah. uh, right that the soviet union was was built from um inherited so exactly so i think you need to look further back than that and his thinking about what he thinks is rightly part of russia um and um and clearly ukraine and belarus are and we're going to get to that. There. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to get to that. Why don't we take a short break and then talk about Mr. Putin's love for his country, Russia. Who are Ukrainians? Seriously, how much do we know about their language and religions, including American evangelism that has spread there since their independence from USSR? Or what do we know about Kiev and Rus? this historic Russian-Ukrainian state. Professor Warner explains all of this in Season 2, Episode 5. And what's the history of war between Ukraine and Russia? In Season 2, Episode 8, Professor Stone of the U.S. Naval War College takes us back to Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, and then Lenin and Stalin to tell us the history of Russia's subjugation of Ukraine. For your convenience, we have also organized these episodes about Ukraine into a post-Soviet States podcast series, the link for which is in the detailed caption of this episode. And while there, check out my conversation with Professor Tutomlu in Season 2, Episode 3. She talks about her homeland, Kazakhstan, after Russia sent troops there. Interestingly, Mr. Putin made a statement about Kazakhstan that is disturbingly similar to what he said about Ukraine, that Kazakhstan is an artificial state. Now, let's get back to my conversation with Professor Stoner. Professor Stoner, does Mr. Putin love Russians, as in the Russian people, or does he love the Russian state that is the grandeur of Russia? So, right. I think he probably wouldn't separate the, the two in, in his mind. Uh, they kind of go uh, hand in hand. Exactly. And, you know, there's some projects actually that he's under that he undertook uh, in the 2000s and then, um, uh, you know, has been maintained, have been maintained. And, and they're kind of interesting. One of them is uh, restoring the palaces of the imperial era. So you can actually, they're beautiful. Uh, they, they were done for an international uh, economics meeting uh, initially outside of St. Petersburg. And it's the Catherine Palace. Um, uh, and they're just beautifully, beautifully restored. Um, you know, the, were they the decaying during the Soviet era? They were wrecked during the Soviet oh, era, wow. right? So the communists tried to get rid of uh, a lot of the, the trappings of the imperial mm -hmm. area because that was, you know, capitalist, bourgeois. Uh, yeah. But he has restored some of those beautiful palaces as um, not, not to live in for himself, uh, but uh, for, you know, historical reasons. And also to, they have hosted meetings there. You can, you can go in as a tourist and they're just magnificent. So definitely, yes, a lot of pride in Russian history, Russian culture, um, and, but had, had until recently been really working to create a modern, uh, stable, uh, Russia that, that, you know, has reason to be proud of this, uh, incredible history. So it does seem like there is this true manifestation of love towards his country. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's not just about power. 
No, I don't think it is uh, just about power. I think, though, that he has evolved in his 22 years in the presidency or, you know, he spent four years as prime minister uh, when Dmitry Medvedev was president. But uh, he's, he was he's still been, in power. Uh, it turns out he was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he stepped sideways, not down. Yeah. <laughs> is Mr. Putin an ideological man? Uh, I think he has become that. Um, it, in it what is way? Not, well, um, it's not an ideology that you and I would recognize as particularly coherent, um, but it is, and it is anti things. So one thing it is anti. is anti is liberalism, and that is you know small l liberalism, as in classical liberalism, the 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 basis on which uh, you know United the United States democracy was was built, um, which is individual rights and freedoms. Um, and uh, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of self-expression in particular. Um, so a much more, you know, small C um, conservative, uh, but even then not completely um, coherent. Um, it is mixed with a kind of nationalism and now um, from time to time, uh, uh, Eastern Orthodox Christianity, because that's, that is one of the main religions in, in Russia. Um, but this, I would say, has, has evolved over time, um, and, and not something that was, was obvious, uh, when he first, you know, returned from Dresden in, in East Germany in, in the 90s. I'm wondering if there were, um, there were things in his earlier life that uh, weren't obvious that could have shown some signs that he has a, a pension to take risks. I mean, <laughs> invading Ukraine is a big risk. Sure. Does anything stick out in his early history? So, uh, you know, there are, as I mentioned, he had a reputation as being a bit of a street tough um, and getting into, in, into fights. I mean, but, a lot of boys that that age yeah. do right in their teens. Well, he kind of continued that shirtless on horseback and all of that. Yeah, that's right? all pretty staged, though. Yeah, right? oh, it um, is. That's not. <laughs> they didn't just come upon him on horseback in the woods and someone pulled out a camera. Um, so, uh, I think um, going to Dresden, doing some of the work that he was doing, it was somewhat risky. I mean, he did run informants, um, and his job was was to you know gather information and intelligence on. NATO. Um, he was in 1989 shredding documents. Um, why <laughs> did they not want those? You know, uh, how if it was such a sleepy station, why was that so worrisome or important to do? Um, and then, you know, he there is this rather infamous story too in, in November 1989 as a crowd was gathering outside the Russian consulate in, in Dresden where his office was, um, that he went out to talk to the crowd. Um, which was risky, right? Because you didn't know who was carrying a weapon. People were mad. They were tearing down communism, literally tearing down the Berlin Wall with their hands. Is this when um, he contacted Moscow and Moscow stayed silent? Right, right, yeah. right. There is Moscow was silent. So, um, you know, I think that shows some pugnaciousness, let me put it that way. Yeah. Uh, tenacity, ability, yeah, willingness to take risks. And of course, we've, we've seen him do the same. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, Adele, as we watch, you know, footage of uh, him meeting with his own security council from 20 feet away and President Macron at the far end of a table, that seems to be a, sort of a worried guy, not willing to take risks with his personal health, apparently. That's, very... that's on the other side of it. The, the right, COVID. right, right. It, another question that sort of gnaws away at my brain is, is that you know, he's a dictator. It's not like he's going to have a real election and be voted out. But he seems to be worried about his standing, his ratings, if you will. Is that the case? Yeah. So modern autocracy works a little differently than, you know, Hitler's uh, autocracy, for example, yeah. or Mussolini's, um, or at least it has um, until now. And so he's really only, he's gradually increased repression 
to what we're seeing today, where it's where it's dangerous to in Russia to or a risk to protest, right? Mm-hmm. That's happened really in the in in particular in the last I would say five six years, um, where, where that has become more and more dangerous. Being a you know shutting down uh, NGOs, this has happened gradually. They've been gradually restricted and then shut down. But until then, and and you know this is not just Putin, uh, but others. You know, Mubarak used to do this in Egypt too. Um, having an election gives the facade, at least, of some sort of legitimacy, um, popular legitimacy. And if you, you know, if we think back to the speech that Putin gave last Monday, as uh, it seems so long ago now, but about ten days before we're talking, he he. Among his many complaints about Ukraine and Ukraine's turn to the West and these Nazi fascist drug addicts who are running the government. It's just crazy. Yeah, Uh, it is. It is. Um, He um, also mentioned that among the things that were going on in this terrible, you know, Ukrainian democracy were that they had NGOs and that, you know, non-governmental organizations that go to help people. Yeah, exactly. You don't have in Afghanistan, too. Right. In the Orange Revolution, he refers back to these popular revolutions, which can which in his thinking are not spontaneous. They they are not expressions of true popular will. They are manipulated. Public opinion can be manipulated. But you also what you don't want, is you don't want those people out on the street. He doesn't want that demonstration effect in Russia. And so things have to look right. With respect yeah. to the NGOs, is he suggesting that NGOs are agents of foreign? Interesting. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We'll be back after a short break to talk about an important question regarding this war, which is why now? And we'll also talk about Professor Stoner's book. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you! Professor Stoner, some time ago, I think it was 2014, the late Senator McCain said that Russia is a gas station masquerading as a country. Uh, was it wrong? Was Russia a ri- sort of a rising power from the ashes of the Soviet Union? And we didn't know this. And I asked this question, uh, uh, particularly with your book in mind, Professor Stoner, and your book is titled mm-hmm. Russia Resurrected Its Power and Purpose in a new global order? Um, so I do think he was wrong. I, I think that he underestimated, as many people have have continued to do, um, the power resources that Russia has amassed and actually how far into the world uh, Russia re- reaches with uh, the various tools of uh, influence that that it has, economic um, and military influence. Yeah, yes, absolutely, mm-hmm. and social for that matter, and political, um, so-called soft and sharp power. Um, so, yeah, uh, uh, yes, it sells a lot of oil and, and natural gas uh, globally, um, and it's a huge actor, very you know, as we would say, weighty and influential actor. Um, in in uh, carbon energy sources, but it also you know it sells coal, sells diamonds, also sells aluminum. Then it also sells weapons, high tech weapons all over the world. It also uh, is the number one wheat exporter in the world, uh, and um, it also has a has a pretty big chemicals um, pharmaceuticals industry. Um, and um, this is way more than a gas station. Exactly. And, and, you know, aside from selling gas, it also moves gas, uh, natural gas uh, around the world and moves oil around the world. 
So it controls a lot of pipelines and networks of of, uh, oil and gas pipelines in the Middle East, right? That's one of the things that Syria brought it. Um, It can control uh, even now as a member of OPEC, so-called plus, the plus is Russia. Yeah. So we used we used to think that Mr. Putin didn't control, uh, you know, global oil prices, and he doesn't completely. But he's got a lot more control now yeah, <laughs> than yeah, he used yeah. to. So, um, um, it, it, it does writing, a lot of heavy industry too. As a uh, heavy industrial tools, yeah, yeah, heavy industrial tools. Are are those sort of uh, these exports? Do they go to South America and Asia? Here in yes. the U.S., we yeah. don't. Both. You know, we don't we're not that familiar with Russian products. Right. Right. And you're not going to be able to walk into Target or Walmart or, you know, uh, and find something that says made in Russia. Mm-hmm. Although you, if you wanted like really high tech uh, uh, stereo equipment, for example, I have a colleague who always says, I got that. That's Russian made. Um, also, wow. Okay. Yeah. If you if you wanted to uh, buy uh, an anti-ballistic missile weapon system, S-300 or S-400, as Turkey did, or Iran or Saudi Arabia or India or China, Russia is the place to go. Um, so it, it's a lot more than just a gas station masquerading as a country. Um, it, sure it seems unfortunately, like it. Yeah, unfortunately can, can sell and does sell um, uh, a lot of um, weapons, equipments, planes, power plants, nuclear power plants globally. Uh, uh, Professor Stoner, in one of your writings, I came across um, a line, and correct me if I'm uh, wrong in this, that uh, you seem to suggest that Russians, the Russian people, at least recently, were actually really doing well, better than Mm -hmm. uh, Chinese people. Am I paraphrasing Mm -hmm. that correctly? Yeah, no, yeah. Um, So the GDP per capita, the gross domestic product per person, um, is is almost tw- well, it's more than uh, twice of what it, China's is. We you know yet we we focus only on China, and that's because China is such a huge economy yeah. and has yeah. so many people. Russia's economy is about the size of South Korea's or Canada's, one point seven trillion. I mean, until recently, mm-hmm. uh, it was actually growing. Uh, grew in in twenty twenty one by uh, about four point three percent, according to the World Bank. Um, and, uh, again, and it, it had, it had begun to decouple its GDP from oil and gas revenues or prices. Let me put and it that And that's a way. good so, move. Any country wants to, you know, right. not be just about commodities. So that, those right. are all positive right. things. Right. Um, Although an incomplete change, I mean, we should be, yeah. we should be clear and underinvested in, in research and development. Uh, but, you know, we wish it were crippled and, uh, and, um, uh, you know, a, 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 pe- a sort of classic petro state and indebted, but it, it it was it is not that. So let's go to the important question that I queued up this segment uh, for. Why now? I mean, as you just shared mm-hmm. with me, r- Russians are doing relatively well. I'm not talking about politics. I'm just talking about mm-hmm. financially, economically. Russia is not under threat. They're chummy with the Chinese, at least from our perspective out here. And Mr. Mm-hmm. Putin doesn't have any sort of formidable organized opposition. <laughs> then, right. then right. why attack now? You know, this right. is not like and there was a, no, uh, yeah, there was no obvious provocation. I mean, it wasn't that Ukraine was about to join exactly NATO, um, uh, nor were they about to join uh, the EU. Um, we just saw Mr. Zelensky, you know, sign an application yesterday. Although there were moves in these direct in, in that direction, no move in the NATO direction, mm-hmm. partly because NATO wasn't wasn't wanting that, nor were Ukrainians particularly. Although you can now understand why they might might have wanted to. <laughs> of course, <laughs> Putin is pushing him to the very point that he didn't he didn't want him to go. Well, right, uh, exactly. Um, and so, so why now? So I think there are different ways of answering this. One thing is we look in retrospect, you know, as um, Russia has become more uh, assertive internationally, it's become more, uh, more repressive at home. So you mentioned in asking me this question, there's no real opposition. 
well, that's right. So if we look back a year ago, year and a half ago, um, the opposition would have been led by a guy that is street protests against this war, let's say, would have been led by a guy named Alexei Navalny. Yep, yep. Well, in August of 2020, the, he was poisoned. Uh, and uh, there's pretty good uh, information that would indicate that he was poisoned by the FSB uh, within Russia. Uh, he was, remember, uh, transported to Germany. Um, and he was then when he recovered, he was rearrested on his return to Russia because uh, he had violated the conditions of the parole he was under. He was under parole for a prior conviction uh, because he was in a coma. Uh, so he couldn't report in literally to his uh, parole officer. There are so no no excuses for for violating right. your parole, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, parole is parole. Yeah. Um, but. But so remember, he was arrested in January of, of 2021, and then yes. he releases this video on Putin's, you know, lavish palace on the Black Sea. So, OK, he's arrested. He's in jail still. He can't lead a protest against anything in Russia right now against uh, and he can't organize one because his organization has been declared a terrorist operation organization and so has been banned in Russia. And all of his people have therefore for the most part, moved to his top people have moved outside of Russia. So then he, uh, there's that, right? So that's a year. Yeah, so Mr. Putin start- is sort of sitting pretty. I mean, you would think, yeah. why would he take a risk now? Right. In December of 2021, just a few months ago, he also they also had you know shut down effectively um, one of the leading human rights organizations, uh, Memorial, that was documenting crimes of Stalin. They had a human rights uh, arm uh, as well. Um, so that is now out of business. And all the other kind of major opposition NGOs or organizations are all out of business too. And this has been happening over the last five or so years. Yeah. So, so you know, one theory here is that this is the culmination of preparation that has been long in coming. We have a recovery of the Soviet, mil- of the Russian military. We have a recovery of the economy. We have $650 billion in foreign reserves as a, as a war chest. We have a low debt to GDP ratio. And so one answer is he was ready. Um, oh. And he he was ready to ultimately do what he had planned to do years and years ago. So, you know, any efforts at negotiation um, or, or implementation of the Minsk agreements that were signed with Ukraine and Russia in 2014, 2015, there was no, you know, there was nothing to that. Uh, all of this diplomacy ahead of time, he had decided years ago. One could argue that this was going to happen. There and then other, I think the, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say. I think the other thing is that you know, if this has been a, a couple of years in preparation, um, the U.S. has withdrawn internationally, and I think that really started under the uh, even under the Obama administration. Yeah, um, and. Uh, you know, continued under under Trump, um, and we ha- the withdrawal in Afghanistan didn't look so good. Oh, um, terrible, right? Europe without Angela Merkel, who had been the chancellor for almost twenty years, um, new German chancellor. Very unclear, you know, whether NATO allies and European allies and the United States would all act together, and so I think. You know, for those reasons, the moment was right um, and he was ready. Um, there are um, other theories, but I find that the most compelling. Yeah, he was prepared and the moment was right. Now, and yeah. all of what you just explained, you were using the word he, Putin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this, I have a question on this. Uh, and, and, and I'll phrase it this way. Uh, Professor Soner, last week, Mr. Putin's head of security seemed to be vacillating on war strategy or it was something that effect. It was on TV, CNN, Fox News, all they were showing this clip. And uh, Mr. Putin got really tough with him, kind of barked at him, saying, like, if you got to say something, say it, man, just come out and say it. And it was eerie. It was sort of like the villain Goldfinger, <laughs> the James mm-hmm. Bond movies, or Doctor Evil, sort of in Austin Powers, <laughs> where 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 his own advisors are afraid of him. 
So I'll go yeah. back to all the explanation that you were giving me. You were saying he is yeah. So Pu is right. Putin alone now? Is he essentially just running the country on his own accord? Uh, well, so I think he's increasingly isolated over COVID. But the, the person you mentioned, who you know, he he had basically stuttering, yeah. wasn't just an wasn't just an advisor. That was the head of foreign intelligence. Of course, yeah. Um, yeah, so Narishkin uh, uh, is his name. So um, he, you know, the the theory is, or the the indications are, I guess, uh, that over over the COVID period, he was pretty isolated, as were many of us. Um, he's divorced. He does have, you know, various mistresses. Um, that he was pretty isolated. He became quite paranoid about getting the disease, and um, this is and, and remains that way. But to the extent that he was interacting regularly with people, it was with a small group, uh, which included Narishkin, the guy he had stuttering there in front of him, the head of the Foreign Intelligence Service, the head of the FSB, that's internal intelligence, like our FBI, um, uh, the uh, defense minister and the head of the Russian Security Council. And, you know, three of those guys, plus Putin, so four out of five have uh, KGB backgrounds. Uh, the one who doesn't is the defense minister. Uh, they're all about the same age, 68, 69 years old. And, you know, getting back to the beginning of, of our conversation, um, they are all marked by the collapse of, you know, this empire, the Soviet empire. They witnessed it and uh, are annoyed by some of the deals that, you know, Putin told us this, right, by Gorbachev. Um, uh, in 1989, uh, claims that we were, we, we the U.S., specifically James Baker, said NATO would expand not one inch beyond the border of, of East Germany if if Gorbachev acceded to, um, you know, quick reunification. Um, no such promise was made, but that doesn't matter. Um, and so, you know, their legacies will be to restore um, for the next generation, the empire that was Russia. And this wow. includes, yes, and fight the, quote, Anglo-Saxons. And this includes Belarus and Ukraine, Ukraine first and foremost, um, because it's not a real country, is what they would all tell you. And he did tell us. So, yeah. yep, yeah. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Stoner as we get into the perspective. Did you know you can preview our podcasts? That's right. Just click the podcast highlights button on our website, www.thepeel.news, and we will email you each episode's highlights and relevant links to news and history for free. Pretty cool, right? Professor Stoner, in your January 14th Wall Street Journal essay titled The Putin Puzzle, Why Ukraine, Why Now? Mm -hmm. You make the following statement, and I quote, Mr. Putin may hope that provoking a diplomatic crisis, though not a full-fledged war, will win back the popularity he saw when Russians rallied around the flag in 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Professor Stoner, we are in a full-fledged war now. So do you yeah. think Mr. Putin blundered into dismiss? We talked about preparation and, and this is the right omen, but he seems to be blundering. And, uh, and, and President Biden, in his State of the Union address, said that Putin badly miscalculated. Well, I think that's true to a certain extent, but it's, I would caution that it's pretty early days here. I think this is day six. Uh, it took us a little longer than that to, you know, uh, occupy Iraq and that it didn't <laughs> yeah. actually go all that well yeah. uh, as time went on. So he didn't, he didn't. Um, uh, on the one hand, um, right, I think he probably didn't anticipate that Europe, especially Germany, um, would would do what it has done so far and, and Cut heavily off a gas line through the Baltics. Well, that you can't stop stop something that hasn't started yet. So I do think that's been overplayed. Um, there was no gas flowing through Nord Stream Two. There is gas flowing through Nord Stream One, though, um, which runs alongside Nord Stream Two. All they've done is put off the certification of it. Yeah, they, um, they were and, waiting and, for some environmental certification. You're right. 
Well, and, and also re um, registration of the company that, that runs it as mm-hmm. a, uh, as a um, German company, I see. which it had not been. So all they've done is pause that they didn't stop any gas um, because there wasn't any flowing. And frankly, if this is symbolic, if uh, Ukraine is absorbed into Russia, then Russia will take control over the network of pipelines that Nord Stream 2 was being built to get around because that was the plan. Um, they were going to, they were, they were trying to, you know, end the need for those pipelines, cut off the rents that Ukraine uh, charged for those pipelines running across their land, you see. Um, and so that's why Nord Stream 2 was being built. It was to avoid Ukraine. But if you own Ukraine, you don't have to worry about it. So that unfortunately is kind of symbolic. Um, the, um, the other thing I think though, that he's been surprised by is, yeah, the unity and also the, how harsh the sanctions are. And then the third thing clearly is how hard the Ukrainians are fighting. Um, he really did think just as I think Dick Cheney or Don Rumsfeld promised President Bush, right? When, uh, we invaded Iraq that they would be greeted, Russian soldiers would be greeted by Ukrainians with bouquets and, um, and instead, they're being greeted with Molotov. Yeah, that ain't cocktails. happening. And it didn't happen in yeah. Iraq after a few weeks. It all turned around. Yeah, right. Right. We were not greeted that way. Right. Um, so I think that that's that there. He's miscalculated. So far, he doesn't seem to have miscalculated his people. Um, there are sporadic um, protests. Um but it and it is very hard to protest in Russia, as, as you know, we were talking about earlier. Yeah. But there are not hundreds of thousands or millions of Russians out on the street, at least not yet, um, yeah. uh, protesting this. So I think we have to wait and see. Um, Miscalculate on some things, not not on other things. Do you see uh, 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 sort of an off road where he can change his mind and back out or? enter into some sort of an interim uh, peace agreement or something like armistice. Yeah. Yeah, So I think it's going to be really very difficult um, to do that. And and I see no sign of willingness of doing that. I mean, there were these meetings in uh, on the border between Belarus and um, Ukraine uh, with representatives of both sides a few days ago. They just increased shelling the Russians on Kharkiv, you know, oh. uh, so they got more violence. So, you know, what he's what he his conditions, quote unquote, are um, for Ukraine is uh, complete demilitarization, declared neutrality. Um, new Ukraine and NATO ha- um, have to um, uh, acknowledge that uh, Crimea, which Russia annexed illegally in 2014, is Part of Russia, and that and recognition of the independence of the of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. Um, I think that, given the number of Ukrainians dying, and that you know children are being born in bomb shelters right now, and seven hundred thousand people have left the country, that uh, Zelensky would have a very hard time staying in office if he agreed to that. And, oh well, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. And right. Mr. Putin is he's sort of writing the tiger, if you will, that he has to go through with this. Otherwise, it may actually backfire on him as well, to some extent. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it may. And, uh, and you know, um, le- but he's banking on the fact that Ukraine is not a NATO country. There's no Article 5 commitment here, uh, for as there would be for a NATO member like Poland. So an attack on one is an attack on all. And he is banking on the fact that uh, the United States in particular, the only military that can truly defeat his, um, will not put uh, boots on the ground or planes or missiles in the sky and directly fight the Russians. Which Mr. Mr. Biden keeps on confirming. Uh, yes. That he's and, and there's good there's good reason for that. I don't want to suggest that's irrational, yeah. uh, although I'm sure it does seem that way for Ukrainians dying. If you wanted our audience to remember just one point about Mr. Putin after everything we've discussed now, what would it be? Um, I, I he's not stupid. Um, oh, that's and he's a very strategic guy. He has a very 
very different view of the world uh, than we do. Professor Stoner, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel.News anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the Peel.News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective to our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments about this episode right on our homepage at www.thepeel.news. Just click the email icon in the lower right corner of your screen. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele, the host of the Peel.News.